Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Professor Rosalina Shea from the Political Science Department of Temple University in Philadelphia. Her first book was China's Regulatory State, A New Strategy for Globalization. And today we'll be talking about her new book, Microinstitutional Foundations of Capitalism, Sectoral Pathways to Globalization in China, India, and Russia. Rosie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So um, before we plunge into your book, first, um, why don't we uh, talk about, uh, just for people who you know aren't coming from the same intellectual tradition, like give us some background on the sort of existing theories of globalization that, that your book is responding to. What are kind of the, I mean, I don't think there's one conventional wisdom, but what are the conventional wisdoms or major frameworks that, that people have used uh, beforehand? Yeah, thank you so much for asking that, Peter. So in many ways, my book um, responds to empirical puzzles that really depart from these conventional wisdoms. And the conventional wisdoms are that, you know, there's in terms of um, countries' integration into the international economy um, and how they respond, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, we have the East Asian developmental state model and uh, very much... Uh, grounded on the understanding of the um, integration to the international economy of the East Asian newly industrialized countries during the Cold War. And that was this idea that um, these countries are, um, you know, under allied protectionship and um, in a very kind of Cold War international environment, they were able to integrate into the international economy by restricting foreign direct investment. And that conventional with the model about the developmental state is that they restricted the foreign direct investment, and then they were then able to protect and promote um, the domestic sector and promote the development of the domestic sector. And that, you know, uh, many of these industrializing countries then were able to intervene into the economy uh, without having to um, respond to or deal with um, foreign capital and the interests of foreign capital. So that's one conventional wisdom. Another conventional wisdom is that um, departing from that developmental state model, we have um, the um, countries that were industrializing in Latin America that took on a very different um, uh, model of development rather than intervening into the domestic economy, they actually um, liberalized their economy and permitted foreign direct investment to come in. And what we saw were um, then basically the state and domestic industry then having to respond to the interests of foreign capital. And so on one hand, we have the developmental state model. On the other hand, we have a, what we could call the liberal state model. And um, and this was, you know, during the Cold War environment. And, um, and also really, even as we entered the 
you know, post-Cold War into the era of neoliberalism, we saw the newly industrialized countries of East Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, um, and, and some of the Southeast Asian countries, so forth as well, continue to have more of a state interventionist um, approach towards the economy. Latin America, um, on the other hand, continued to have more of a more liberal, um, less interventionist um, approach to the um, to their economy. And many times, a lot of that has to do with also pressures from the international organizations and funding organizations, whether it was IMF, World Bank, or so forth. So these are kind of the two big models that um, are um, in the literature, the conventional wisdoms. Right. And I guess those are right. And so they're models of globalization. So, you know, they and those themselves were kind of reactions to or a next step beyond the earlier stage where there was kind of the, well, I guess the, the non-industrialized globalization, you know, like colonization where you, where the, the, you know, Europeans or whoever would show up and just, you know, take your, your natural resources. Um, and then also the, uh, you know, other earlier phases of maybe, uh, more autarkic kind of economic development where people were trying to develop their economies without engaging with the global economy, um, generally with, with not much success. And so these are di- were different ways of trying to actually, you know, accept that, you know, you do have to be engaged with the global economy, but kind of different ways of, of dealing with it. So, um, right. So then in your, uh, in your book, you uh, chose to study China, India, and Russia, um, so, so how did you come around to, now obviously, you know, your background, your previous book, you've been working on China. How did you decide to uh, take on India and Russia as well? That's a, that's a pretty big package to try to wrap, kind of try to wrap your head around. Yeah, it is, it is, um, you know, big package, big book. Um, I, so in my first book, I, you know, I, I noticed you know, the empirical puzzle, which was that, you know, as I mentioned, these two conventional wisdoms, and, um, and I should say that even within these two kind of conventional models of de- development and globalization, um, there were also um, other approaches or other, you know, debates about sequencing of economic policy, you know, we have import industrialization, um, import substitution industrialization versus, you know, export oriented industrialization and and so forth. So there were also, of course, policy debates within these models. So I want to make sure I I mentioned that. Um, But what we saw with China was that China was integrating into the international economy in a very, um, you know, very different international environment. It was, um, you know, in the beginning, um, nearing the end of the Cold War, and then also later during the, you know, kind of the height of neoliberalism. China, you know, enters into the World Trade Organization and, um, you know, began to be much more open towards foreign direct investment. Um, And so in my first book, I investigated, um, you know, China's, what I call liberalization two-step. This idea that China was open to foreign direct investment and was part of the World Trade Organization and part of the international economy, but in fact, actually from very early on, began to re-regulate across industrial sectors. Um, and um, and so, so in that liberalization two-step, when I you know, oftentimes people would um, ask me questions about, well, how does China, how how does China's approach or China's model, you know, compare to other large developing countries uh, like India or Russia? And I began to um, start looking at, you know, uh, the approaches of these two countries. And what I realized was that, really, in fact, 
um, both India and Russia also did not um, uh, adhere to these conventional wisdoms that I had mentioned earlier of globalization and subsequent development. And in fact, in the era of neoliberalism, we saw, uh, you know, obviously with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union famously then um, the, at least within studies of Russia, um, famously marketized and privatized and, um, and, you know, went through stabilization policies and so forth. And then India, particularly in the 1990s and beyond, launched a big bang liberalization. So we had these, you know, two large developing countries of comparable size and really um, with also existing industrial bases, adopting an approach that seemingly um, adhere to more of what China was doing, which was liberalizing and opening its economy. Um, but at the same time, once we bring it to the micro-industrial level, we also saw um, that India and Russia did not necessarily adopt the Latin America or neoliberal model either. And so then it becomes um, imperative for me then to, well, let's, let's compare these three countries and um, you know, go to the micro-industrial level and try to understand, um, is there a particular logic or interacting logics that we could um, identify that help us explain um, how they're integrating into the international economy in the age of neoliberalism that isn't necessarily either the developmental state model or a model that was just, um, you know, uh, more of a more neoliberal model. Okay, and so you chose um, two two industries to to focus on um, telecoms and and textiles, sort of one at the the highest end of uh, technology, more or less, and then one uh, you know a very foundational uh, industrial um, technology, um, and looked at those in, across all three countries. So, what are some of the the key um, variations uh, that you noticed um, among them? Yeah, so um, what I identified was that there's, you know, as states approach at regulating and governing their economies, uh, the impact, there's kind of multidimensionality in the impact of sectors. And um, and so what we saw was that depending on um, how state elites perceive the strategic value of their sectors, they're going to approach um, in regulating and governing the industries very differently. And um, we see variation on the country level in how countries perceive the strategic value of sectors. And so that then will um, interacting with sectoral structures, you know, these technological properties are inherent in, in all sectors that are in many ways, you know, textiles is textiles, you know, whether you are in China, Russia, India, or in any other country for that matter. And telecoms have these technological properties that are also, um, that are structural characteristics that really don't change across these economies either. And so how state elites perceive the strategic value of sectors interacting with, you know, uh, sectoral structures and also existing um, sectoral organization and institutions that together will shape how these countries are going to regulate and govern their industries. And um, some of the the, the 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 large dominant patterns that vary across these countries um, would be, for example, we have um, in um, in in China where 
textiles um, is, you know, not as strategic to the state for, because it's, it's labor intensive, it's, um, it's less value added. And so as a sector that's le considered less strategic, then the state decentralizes, deregulates, and up to the subnational level. And so allowing subnational actors and also um, industries and businesses to regulate and govern the non-strategic sectors such as textiles, that's more labor intensive and less strategic, um, less um, value added. On, on the other hand, we have telecommunications where the state, because of its contribution to the national technology base and also implications for national security, then you have the state centralizing the regulation and governance of telecommunications. So that's what we see in China. Um, on the other hand, Despite the fact that um, it is true that the technological properties of textiles and telecommunications remain the same, we have India, because of differences in the perceived strategic value of these sectors, we have a very different uh, model of governance um, in India. And in um, textiles, for example, a more labor-intensive and less value-added sector, where really during the age of globalization that these countries are globalizing, many countries in the world have already um, deregulated right during um, the age of neoliberalism and decentralized the regulation of textiles. In fact, the Indian government actually continues to govern and regulate textiles and different subsectors of textiles with a ministry of textiles. And so, of course, they do work with subnational governments to do so, but there are a lot of mobilization of capital and also bureaucratic resources and energies in continuation of regulating textiles. And this, I argue in the book, is rooted in the significance of textiles to the you know, Indian government, Indian state elites, um, because of the significance of textiles in the nationalist imagination of, of, of um, rooted in the independence trajectories of, of, of India. Textiles, um, you know, Gandhi famously, uh, you know, led nationalist movement uh, focused on um, cotton nationalism and really in the time of independence from Great Britain, um, it was during a period where some of the internal and external pressures during that time had to do with the fact that the um, British colonial government um, was dumping a lot of textiles from Manchester, right? This is in the early 1900s and so forth into the Indian economy, which, ran, which then affected Indian textile de um, development. And so at that time, India, uh, Gandhi was, um, uh, you know, mobilized both, you know, uh, small scale Indian uh, producers of textiles, as well as, um, India, Indian industrial elites to, um, around um, in the kind of uh, mobilizing independence um, of India away from Great Britain. So the significance of textiles is very different um, from the significance of textiles to um, China. And so in those kind of significance, 
continues to have effect today. And so we have a Ministry of Textiles in India even today, fast forward 100 years later. On the other hand, telecommunications is an industry in India where um, it's very much deregulated. It was one of the first industries to be deregulated um, in the Big Bang liberalization in the 1990s and beyond. And so these are kind of these are two dominant patterns or, or four dominant patterns that I see in, um, you know, comparing China and India. And of course, we also have the Russia cases as well, where because of the perceived strategic value of sectors interacting with sectoral structures and existing organization of institutions, we see very different um, models of, of, of globalization and development. And I so call... Sorry, yes. let me see if I can try yeah. to um, just uh, summarize to make sure I'm getting it. So, um, so the, I mean, certainly, I guess, partly because of, of course, I've studied uh, China much longer and much more closely. So China seems like the more intuitive thing, like, okay, textiles, not a big deal. So once you're giving up on state control of everything, you can go ahead and just like, you know, let people set up their t-shirt factories and, uh, you know, fast fashion or whatever it is. And if they make money, that's great. And they can make some exports and, you know, nice bonus it helped you know propel the whole economy um and then but then you know telecoms is you know a leading edge uh industry with strategic importance and um affects uh you know it has a lot of anything that happens in telecoms have has a lot of spillover effects onto the industrial development of your whole economy so there can be more uh you know maybe a stronger argument for for maintaining close control of it um, in various ways, but then in, um, so I get that in, in India, because, uh, there's, I guess I'd say like a sort of, uh, you know, leftover idea of just, there's this position of textiles in the national imagination as this very important industry that, you know, we, we, you know, it was, it was being artificially kind of held down by, by um, the industri- industrialization of, of Britain and, and colonial relationships. And so to, to free themselves from that and be self, uh, self-sufficient, have their own textile industry was really important to them and, and remains important, even though maybe from a more objective standard, we'd say textiles is no, no longer needs to be the linchpin of, um, you know, highly regulated, managed linchpin of the Indian economy. Is, is, that, is that right so far? Yeah, and you know what I identify is the intersubjectivity of how governments, um, state elites view the strategic value of sectors. Right. On one hand, we have the objective um, um, factors of um, you know what these industries mean for you know national technology technological development, what it means for you know national security and so forth. Because for example, telecoms is um, uh, a security oriented sector in, in, in many countries, right? Whether it's China, India or, or Russia or other countries. And yet the intersubjectivity of how um, the countries perceive their importance may be different. And so for India, it's, you know, textiles is rooted in, you know, these earlier episodes in, of, of, um, of nationalist um, development and, um, and, 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 um, Whereas telecommunications, on the other hand, is disconnected from that um, the the subjective understanding of of um, India's you know national development, and so therefore um, during the 
age of neoliberalism and during the time of Big Bang liberalization, then telecoms then gets deregulated and um, liberalized in a way that even though it was called Big Bang liberalization and supposedly the entire macro economy should have been affected, affected, but in fact, when you go to the microsectoral level, you see differences. And um, and and the similar argument, what I call the strategic value framework, um, bring together the intersubjectivity of um, the perceived value of sectors and sectoral structures and institutions. That um, strategic value framework, I then also apply to um, the Russia case as well. Yeah. So, t- so tell us, uh, tell us about Russia. Yeah, so with Russia is the conventional wisdom in the um, in the Russia specific case is that when with the collapse of the Soviet Union, we had, um, again, macro level liberalization and privatization, massive privatization and um, and and, you know, particularly with the collapse of the Communist Party and, and so forth. But in fact, once I took a closer look and went to the micro industry level, we saw that um, indeed it is true, many parts of the um, of the economy was privatized and deregulated and, you know, te- textiles, in fact, was deregulated and, and beginning to um, privatized even prior to the class of the Soviet Union during um, Perestroika and the era of Glasnost. But in other sectors, particularly, for example, in the sector that I, um, I studied, telecommunications, in fact, the Russian government um, was much more slower in deregulating telecommunications and never really privatized landline um, uh, networks. And what I identify and found was that they did not do so because the telecommunication networks at the time of um, the big, you know, macro level liberalization was so connected to the um, Soviet military industrial complex and um, civilian networks and military networks were viewed, perceived as one and the same that even the Russian Federation during the time of um, macro level liberalization, in fact, did not actually let go of telecommunications. And so um, more newer technological sectors like um, mobile and value added sectors for a decade or so before the rise of Putin did see the introduction of competition and um, some of the landlines were deregulated to the subnational level, um, but never privatized. And once Putin came into power, in fact, began to centralize and began to centralize the um, the governance and the regulation of landline networks as well as mobile networks and began to regulate the um, the value added services that were on top that operate on top of um, these basic service networks and um, and the fact that Putin was able to do so and do so so quickly was because telecommunications was so um, connected to the um, the, uh, the the defense military industrial complex that it was never privatized and never completely let go, despite the conventional wisdom that that was what in fact had happened um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I was thinking about you know how to how to 
summarize your, your whole book or characterize it in a sense, a sort of metaphor that sprang to mind, which is probably not exactly correct because I don't fully understand the math behind it, but I was thinking about fractals, you know, where there's kind of, you look at the picture on at one level, you know, like at the country level and you sort of take an average measurement and say, this is kind of what it is. And then you can compare countries and say, here's some paths to globalization or development and, and different models people have followed. But then it seems like what you're, what you're doing is kind of, you know, once you, it's like, like those fractal patterns, when you zoom in, it looks just as complex as it did at the higher level. And there's all these other, other differences, nuances, and some things that, you know, it looked like on average, it was, you know, whatever, one color, but then once you, once you zoom in, it's, there's just so much, so many different things going on. And that's kind of what you, um, what you show in your, uh, in your research. Yeah. And, um, yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, what I, then called this new model of development that departs from developmental state or neoliberal model is I call this um, national configurations of sectoral models, right? On my hand, you know, on the macro level, there are these national configurations that do matter, right? National level, um, you know, perceptions, um, you know, state elites as, um, you know, perceive the value of sectors in response to internal and external pressures, those kind of national level um, ideas and values matter, um, but it does interact with sectoral structures and organization of institutions. And so that's why we have this national configurations of sectoral models. And what I argue is that really this strategic value framework um, can be applied to and used to examine auto, um, other models of globalization trajectories as well. Um, and in terms of the sectoral models, I come up with a typology of market governance that help us to think about how um, different sectors are governed, you know, centralized, decentralized, and how they're governed. And then once we identify um, these dominant patterns um, at the sectoral level, then um, we we, come, we have these sectoral models um, that um, then gets uh, connected to these national configurations. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is fascinating. I think definitely, you know, gives a lot to to think about in terms of, uh, you know, going beyond this, these broad sweeping characterizations of development. Um, so um, why don't you why don't you tell us now a little bit about uh, how you want about your research? Um, that's, uh, you know, China, India and Russia. That's, again, a lot, a lot of ground to cover. Um, and uh, and I'm also curious, like how. Um, how your experience of doing research on each of those countries um, was was different? Yeah, so um, in terms, so, you know, the research is very much grounded in immersive fieldwork. And um, so I went to these countries and talked to, you know, different levels of government. I um, talked to industry. I talked to a business, I talked to companies. And so I very much um, made sure that I talked to different levels of government and different um, levels of the political economy. It's um, a comparative, uh, multi-level comparative case research design in the sense that I wanted to make sure that um, I could triangulate different um, types of data by talking to different stakeholders, um, both at the national, subnational, and firm level, um, I'm able to then triangulate um, the data that I, um, that I 
that I'm able to collect. So I have qualitative data, I have documentation data, um, you know, in-depth interviews. I um, also examine and look at um, quantitative data at the, um, the industry level and the subsector as well. Um, and um, what I did was I, I just went to these countries and, um, and then conducted in-depth field work. Um, so how does, how does field work differ in, in, uh, in India or in Russia compared to China? Yeah. Um, the, you know, one of the things um, about looking at these different industries is that I am able to um, see the, the, the complexity across um, by look by, by, choosing sectors that are labor intensive versus capital intensive, I'm able to um, really in many ways see um, the entire economy and the complexity of the entire economy. And um, and by doing so, I really am able to see um, how these three different countries, in fact, um, are from how different they're from each other um, and, and, and sometimes how similar they are from each other as well. And um, in um in in india i um on on one hand um you get to see the the rich diversity of the different states um the uh the rich diversity of the different ethnicities and, and different parties that operate um at the subnational level but also because you know i'm looking at sectors and the differences in how the states regulate these sectors there are some quite similarities even in how the different industries are um, able, uh, uh, you know, are, are regulated, um, you know, textiles, for example, you have a ministry of textiles and that's a national level um, uh, bureaucracy that then uh, have policies that get, um, that gets enforced on the subnational level. And um, and the similar with, with with China as well, right? Telecommunications, it's 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 regulated by you know a supra ministry at the state council level. They have offices at the subnational level, but in many ways the policies are being enforced similarly. And so in all three large federal systems, um, you know, even though there are variations across uh, industries, I'm able to see how these different bureaucracies, you know, centralized bureaucracies look quite different from each other. Um, and, and, and really that's where the national configurations come in, right? We have techno security developmentalism being what operates in China and uh, that will influence the, what I call the, the, the bifurcated capitalism that gets played out at the industry level. Um, in India, we have neoliberal self-reliance, and so on. On one hand, you have a, a much a, a telecoms regulator that um, regulates competition in telecoms, but really doesn't, um, you know, do much to regulate um, at the firm level um, the different. Uh, kind of competitive activities that occur in telecommunications, but then you have textiles um, where protectionism and um, and 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 kind of more micro, uh, more almost micromanaging types of um, a policy that gets proliferated in textiles, even at the very um, uh, you know subsector and firm level in India, and so by going and talking to these different um, stakeholders at different levels of government, 
I'm able to see how these um, countries operate um, quite differently, even as they in, um, integrate into the, um, the the international economy. And yeah, certainly you see the security you know apparatus, the security state in China. It is an authoritarian country. And so one of the one of the um, insights that um, I am able to glean from looking at these three companies is that I mean, these three countries is that regime type certainly does matter. Um, but because of kind of sector level differences, even in how the regime, right, whether it's an authoritarian country or a democracy or an increasingly authoritarian country in Russia, um, because of these kind of micro sector level differences in how these regimes view these sectors, the authoritarian government that we see in China looks very differently in textiles than the authoritarian government that we see in telecoms, right? In, in terms of the control of information um, and the micromanagement of ownership, the micromanagement of business scope, micromanagement of in investment level and so forth, that authoritarian state looks very different in labor intensive, less value added sectors such as textiles in China. Um, and in India, you see a state that is, um, in some ways, departing from the conventional wisdom of the, the idea of, you know, lack of state capacity in, in, in textiles, or at least there's more mobilization of national level resources in textiles um, in a way that departs from the conventional wisdom of, 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 of you know, bureaucratic states that, of a bureaucratic state that really lacks, um, you know, state capacity, a bureaucratic state that really is very lackluster, lots of, um, you know, bureaucratic um, holdups and, and, and so forth. Because the state mobilizes um, different types of, and also different um, levels of attention based on this perceived strategic value of these sectors, the state will look quite differently at the industry level. And I think that is the same across all three countries, but because of the regime type differences, then you're gonna, there will be some differences in, um, in how these countries, in fact, even then govern um, at the industry level as well. And how did you find um, getting access to uh, to people in industry? And that's certainly within well, politicians both in democracies and in authoritarian regimes sometimes are are uh, you know are, and bureaucrats can be reluctant to talk to you. Did you find um, one group to be more open or more guarded than the other, or or easier to get access to? Yeah, and I, I um, certainly you know, based on these dominant patterns at the sectoral level that I have identified for these three countries, there are differences in terms of, you know, the ways in which the governments responded to, you know, a scholar coming in and asking questions. Um, and, and sometimes it's not even just the governments, but also the industry or the company level um, stakeholders. Um, the at the same time because i am looking at these different industries i'm able to pay attention to particular sectors or particular uh, or gather information about particular sectors you know um 
at different times. So if we have a crisis moment or a time where there's more um, government um, of, you know, intervention or closeness in a particular sector, then I could focus on another sector um, and, and focus on gathering information on another sector. And so as a result, um, I am really able to, across time, able to, um, to, to, to talk to these different stakeholders. And so, for example, for Russia, um, I, was, I began to do some of the research for this book during um, around the time of, of um, Russia's annexation of Crimea. And um, it was, you know, right after it occurred. And um, so there were definitely some sensitivities in terms of um, what, you know, different stakeholders would like to talk about or, um, or don't want to talk about. But at the same time, there were also people who wanted to speak to me in terms of um, you know their effects uh, of the effects of of geopolitics and um, of, of of you know the sanctions and, and global politics and Russia's response to those um, those um, the, the the sanctions that you know came to be um, after Crimea the global sanctions and so on one hand um, it was it was a, t a crisis moment of what you know you would think that people would not want to talk but they also then provided moments for some of these people in the different sectors to um, share um, the um, you know to, to share their experience and, and what is going on at, at the time. Right. And I guess it, you know, that's a good thing about having a book length project that you're able to develop over, over a number of years. So then you can kind of be nimble on a specific, uh, you know, visit, uh, depending on who's, who's more or less able to talk to you. Yes. Yeah. And that was, that was great. Yeah. Um, well, so, uh, what would, so to go out on, uh, more of a limb, um, if we take, if we take your framework, uh, have you have you thought about you know any uh, predictions that you'd make for any of these countries going forward? Sort of uh, you know trajectories that um, kind of come out of the, the 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 factors that you identify. I mean, it's social science, so you know we can barely predict the fast past, and we're not so good at the future. But I'm curious just to sort of think think through more of the implications of, of your your argument and your framework in that way. Yeah. Um... Some of the things I, I um, do in the um, in the book and in the last chapter of the book is I think about um, I write about how these national configurations of sectoral models have effect on um, how these countries respond to global conflict and collaboration. Um, and you know, the the Russia case, for example, you know I mentioned earlier that. In um, because textiles was not considered a very strategic sector even prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, you know textiles was really in many ways left to not only was it deregulated and privatized it was left to um, languish over time. But the perceived strategic value of the sector increasingly, particularly in the technical textile sectors, increasingly became more strategic as you know, Putin and, and Russian state elites and, and even industrial elites um, uh, respond to internal and external pressures. And so, for example, during the post-Crimea era, we have, you know, this 
private stakeholders in textiles, right? A very deregulated, liberalized, um, privatized sector um, really started mobilizing and um, and and mobilizing the state to ha uh, begin to to invest more in textiles after decades of you know of really state not even really the, the, the central level state not really paying too much attention. And so then in technical textiles, you know during an era of global sanctions and, and really began to receive funding from the national government. And, you know, in the era, area of geosynthetics, in um, technical sectors that um, were non-woven fiber, that really had um, defense applications. And so by the time of the most recent um, Russia invasion, you know, Russia invasion into Ukraine, you have um, the beginnings of um, import industrialization, import substitution industrialization in some of the sectors that um, the government really had not really paid too much attention to um, in, in the last several decades, but now are beginning to become more important. So, you know, we have, you know, of course, the telecommunications sectors and, and its role um, and involvement in, in, in cybersecurity and, and, and so forth. But then you also have the textile sectors, particularly in this, the, the technical sectors that are um, that have received a lot more funding. These are defense sectors. And in my book, I also um, trace um, and um, identify some of the kind of China-Russia um, developments, China-Russia relations surrounding um, some of these technical sectors and um, uh, sectors involving the oil, uh, you know, some of these technical sectors also have inputs um, from oil and gas and um, some relationship between China and, 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 and Russia um, since Crimea um, in, in some of those subsectors as well. So there are definitely implications um, for uh, for these trajectories, these globalization development trajectories that, I've had, I, that I have identified and um, concretely a, a very recent um, uh, set of geopolitical issues um, uh, is it, it, just what I just described. So, so in that case, they... Uh, they needed basically these these technical fibers just for for military clothing, and so um, so because of that before it'd been kind of neglected because it wasn't you know whatever it was just some textile low end thing it wasn't viewed as nationally crucial, and then they realized oh wait we can't actually you know clothe our military the way we want to with like protective fibers and things like that if we don't have our own indigenous uh, uh, production is that is that right. It, 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 exactly, and um, the um, for for decades, Russia was one of the largest um, markets for apparel in the in, globally, but didn't really produce apparel. Didn't produce, and it wasn't just apparel or even you know military clothing, but a lot of these um, uh, these synthetic man-made fibers also contribute to um, to to infrastructure to you know the roads. So there are a lot of these technical texts, uh, sectors of textiles that people don't really think about um, that are in fact um, man-woven um, fiber that um, have, a, have many different, um, are, are in fact many different inputs into important sectors. Uh, plastics is also um, a subsector of technical textiles and, um, and, 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 and they contribute to, um, to, you know, defense, um, infrastructure and, and so forth. Right. It sort of reminds me of how, uh, you know, after, after the COVID um, outbreak, all of a sudden we 
got very concerned with, you know, personal protective equipment and, you know, things like, if I'm remembering correctly, like nasal swabs and things like, you know, there was only one factory and it wasn't in our country. And then I was like, wait, how are, what are we going to do about that? Um, things that we previously thought as very, you know, low end, you know, let's let whoever, you know, let comparative comparative advantage work its way and let whoever wants to make it, make it. And it's probably not going to be in the U S with our wage structure, but then, uh, yeah, quite, uh, um, you know, quite a lot of more turn towards self-reliance for, for many countries in many dimensions as a result of that. And, you know, um, yeah, you bring, you, you bring up COVID, um, you know, during, during the national lockdowns in China during COVID, um, you know, many factories and companies were shut down, but because of the um, significance to the national technology base and national security imperatives of semiconductors, of um, telecommunications equipment, really those companies and factories never really shut down despite national you know lockdown for for the rest of the economy mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah every country has to decide what's uh, what its real priorities are um, in those kinds of uh, times of emergency um, all right well thank you I think our, our time is just about up I think this is a good point to stop um, but but first one uh, why don't you tell us you know what are you what are you working on next what's your next project you have another yeah. book in the works <laughs> so what I'm interested in um, now is I'm interested very much um, uh, in looking at um, the impacts of, um, of of these national configurations of sectoral models on um, and and how these countries um, interact with the rest of the world. And um, so I have one paper with a doctoral advisee of my looking at um, patterns of China's outbound foreign direct investment. And I, you know, we're looking at, um, we're using the strategic value framework to and operationalizing, it's a large and um, quantitative paper, we're, you know, operationalizing strategic value um, you know, with its economic and political dimensions and applying it to how um, China has invested um, foreign direct investment across uh, different regions and um, countries. And so the, that's one paper I've uh, been working at, uh, working on. Um, another uh, project I'm working on with another graduate student of mine is uh, we're looking at, um, you know, applying and thinking about perceived strategic value and what that may look like in other parts of the world. So um, in looking at, um, some Latin American countries and, you know, traditionally, right, that, 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 um, the conventional wisdom of neoliberal model, um, well, perhaps, you know, how, how does the perceived strategic value orientation, how might that affect, um, you know, in the, um, in the post-Cold War era, some of these governments in Latin America and how they govern and regulate um, foreign direct investment and also the domestic economy. And so that that's, those are some of the projects I've been working on. Um, and also something quite different from what I've worked on before, um, although somewhat related in that um, as I speak to different, um, you know, stakeholders and, and talk to them about these different, um, you know, 
perceived strategic values, I am interested in exploring more on how that might affect um, state formation and uh, national development um, and, 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 and nationalism. Um, and so that's kind of the beginnings of a project um, on nationalist movements and, um, and, and, uh, and, and, and the impact of um, perceived strategic values. Wow, that sounds like a, a great uh, a great agenda, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing all those. Um, and again, for listeners, this is Professor Rosalind Shea, who um, and we were talking about her book, uh, Microinstitutional Foundations of Capitalism: Sectoral Pathways to Globalization in China, India, and Russia, which is from Cambridge University Press, and it's available now in all good bookstores and online forums. Thank you very much, Peter. <laughs>